How many of you have heard of the video game Angry Birds? How many of you have actually played it? Okay, it seems to be the younger folks among the congregation. Well, Angry Birds is a video game that can be played on smartphones, iPads, television sets, and now it even comes as a tabletop game, which my daughter got for her birthday. And she let me borrow some of her little Angry Birds. Okay? Don't they look mad? Well, according to my other child, they're mad because the pigs have stolen their eggs. So the way this game works is the pigs, 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 are behind a framework of wood, and I didn't bring that because I knew it would topple over if I tried to make that here, but, but the point of the game is it's like the birds are in a slingshot, and then you let go of the slingshot, and it goes and it is propelled over toward the framework of wood behind which the piggies are hiding. And with each bird, you try to knock down part of the framework, and then the piggies get their just rewards in the process. And my kids will be delighted to dis- demonstrate this for you later on, I feel sure. As you move up through the levels, the frameworks get larger, and thereby harder to demolish. And this seems to be an apt metaphor for our church or any organization going through a major transition. We piggies may not have stolen anyone's eggs, and we may not intend to hide behind our frameworks, but we do. And that puts us among the great company of Jesus' first disciples. Jesus came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, a world in where grace and generosity abound, a realm very different from the realm we know now. In the story in today's gospel, Jesus takes a slingshot. And he pulls it back, and he aims directly at the frameworks behind which we hide. He says to his disciples, for the kingdom of heaven is like this. So he's already differentiating between God's realm and the realm that we know. The kingdom of heaven is like this. A landowner goes to manpower temporary agency something like that, before 6 a.m. and says, I need workers in my vineyard. The landowner and the laborers agree on, say, $20 a day, just enough for their daily bread. At 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m., the landowner goes back, finds people willing to work, and sends them out into his vineyard. He agrees, he tells them he'll pay them whatever's right. Doesn't give them amount. Whatever is right, whatever is just is what I'll pay you. At 5 p.m., one hour is left in the workday. The landowner goes again, finds more workers, and sends them into the vineyard without even agreeing on a price. 
6 p.m. All the workers are called in. Each gets $20 for his labor. Whether they worked 12 hours, 9, 6, 3, or 1 hour, they all get the same wage. And so we know who's grumbling against the landowner. They agreed on $20, but they saw the people who came in at 5 o'clock get $20, so certainly they deserved more. Well, that's their framework. Because I work harder, I deserve more money. Now, that doesn't differ today. In the corporate world, according to Time.com, executives in the corner office make 62 times more than the average worker just in bonuses. Because they work that much harder, don't they? How about the couple in which both partners work full-time, but one makes more money than the other, and so she thinks she shouldn't have to do as many chores at home? How about the church members who put in more time volunteering, and so they expect to to get a louder voice at the meetings or in decision-making? Many of our frameworks are based on who deserves what. They're based on how much power or how much the ones in power can squeeze out of everyone else. Too rarely are our frameworks based on generosity, which is how things work in God's economy. When we're the workers who come in at the last hour and get paid the same as the workers who worked all day long, we like God's economy, (laughs) don't we? We like it a lot. On the other hand, when we've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat, we prefer our own framework of justice. We deserve more, we think. We're entitled to more. But there's a problem with this kind of framework. It's more inhibiting than we may realize. Not long after college, I was in training with about 40 other young adults preparing for a two-year stint on the mission field. Our training included exercises to help us tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Twice, we had to choose a Bible passage and a partner from among our trainee group, and then we would use that passage to explain to them about Jesus and his sacrifice and eternal life and what that means to us and why they should then sacrifice their lives to him. And following that, our partner, a hopefully semi-mature Christian, would critique us. Twice I had the opportunity to do this, and twice I failed miserably. Whatever I said or didn't say left them far from convinced that they should accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. So I felt like a failure as a Christian. I wondered, how can I be a missionary and not be able to convert people? My framework, for one thing, was that it was my job to convert people, not the Holy Spirit's. But besides that, it was that that was the only way that I could help people know Jesus. Five years later, I started seminary. 
where I encountered multiple angry birds in slingshots. <laughs> A professor helped me understand the context for scripture and a piece of the framework hiding me would fall away. A student would share an insert and another piece of the framework would bounce to the ground. At first, I felt exposed and vulnerable and scared. Multiple frameworks were destroyed and many metaphorical piggies died in the process. But somehow I survived, and different from the previous experience, instead of feeling like a failure, I felt freed. That's one thing I think Jesus would like us to experience through his story. Freedom. Today's scripture passage from Exodus would have been a key passage for Jesus as well. Descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now called the Israelites, had been slaves in Egypt until God had freed them. And in their freedom, they set course toward a new land. If you have been delivered from some kind of bondage, you may sense how elated they felt. But according to Verse 1 of chapter 16 in Exodus, it took six weeks for the people to become nostalgic about how wonderful it was back in Egypt. Steve Martin has a song called Daddy Played the Banjo. He wrote it with Earl Scruggs' son, Gary. And in it, the first few verses are this idyllic scene where a boy hears Here's his, his dad playing the banjo underneath a tree, and he goes over and he joins him, and his dad starts putting his fingers on the, um, on the frets to make the noise, and his dad would then play the songs. And so together they made this beautiful music, and then you get to the last verse, and he says, well, I'm just making up lies about those things I did. And he says, now the banjo takes me back through the foggy haze where memories of what never was become the good old days. The Israelites had memories of what never was in Egypt, at least not in their lifetimes. Ah, oh, the good old days when we sat by the pots of meat and ate our fill of bread. They remembered Good parts, but not the hard work, the sweat, the long, painful days, the fear. But take us back to Egypt, they tell Moses, where it's summertime and the living is easy. Pastor James Lambkin wasn't sure who he was quoting when he noted, the hardest nostalgia to live past is that which never happened. One of the episodes of Mad Men, Don Draper says, Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a twinge in your heart far more powerful than memory alone. And so the Israelite people in that state of nostalgia complained to Moses and Aaron, but God was eavesdropping. And God responded, 
giving the people exactly what they needed. No more, no less. It's as if they prayed, give us this day our daily bread. And God provided just enough for every single person. Again, these scriptures are timely for us as Calvary moves into a wilderness. We have enjoyed and appreciated the talent and abilities of Mark Duvall for over 10 years, and our comfortable framework is about to be bombarded. Mark's departure from our family system may feel like an obstacle that we cannot surmount. We will comment about how a future organist isn't as talented or doesn't help the choir sound as good, and we will be right. Unlike the Israelites, we have had it good. We're like the man who was sour because his aunt had died two weeks ago and left him $50,000, and then his uncle had died the next week and left him $100,000, and so why was he bitter? This week, he said, I inherited nothing. So we have important choices to make. Will we remain in our old framework? Or will we trust God to lead the church through the wilderness and into a meaningful new framework? These two Bible passages teach us several things. Both express God's full grace and generosity None of us deserves the amazing gifts of this life, but thankfully, as Charlotte Cleghorn says, God is a lousy bookkeeper. It's as if any debts are written in that column with disappearing ink. The passages teach us that it's okay to complain sometimes as long as we realize that we can't always get what we want, but if we try sometimes, we just might find we get what we need. The gospel passage reminds us that judging others does not help us get what we want. Usually it just makes us unhappy. And lastly, whether or not we decide to put our trust in God, God is equally generous to each of us. God's framework is not one of scarcity, but of abundance. And no angry bird can knock that down. Let's pray. Lord our God, we are so grateful for the power of your grace, the abundance of your generosity, and the freedom that that gives to us to be graceful and generous to others. Help us to remember who you are so that we can be faithful followers. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.